He is risen. All right. Now, for those of you who are new to meeting with Christians, let me explain what just happened, because that's a little weird, I got to say. Just this is one of those greetings that goes on with Christians around the world uh, just for a really long time. He is risen, and the callback is he is risen in. Let's all do it together. He is risen. Awesome. Trying to read that with my six-year-olds this morning. We're still working We're still working on it. I'd invite you to open up to Romans chapter 7. I know it's sad. Uh, kids don't want to leave. The sermon time is fun. If you're a uh, handout, let me invite you right now to look at the passage underneath the title. And I think it says Romans 5 something. It's actually Romans 7, 1 to 6. That's the text we'll be looking at this morning. I'm going to need to talk to our, um, our handout department. because they Utterly blew it. They got the date right, but not the text. So uh, I'll have a conversation with that person this week. On Friday, we commemorated the suffering and the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Some of you were in this room with a just phenomenal tenebrae service where we read the seven words of Christ and ended um, in utter darkness and just left in silence to commemorate that. This morning, we celebrate. And this is the morning that we get to, um, of all the Sundays uh, that we ever get to, we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the truth always has opposition. Jesus is unlike any other spiritual leader claiming to be God from all the world's religions, because he didn't point the way to God, but rather he said, I am the way. He didn't just claim to know truth. Jesus said these words, I am truth. The truth has always had opposition. Last week in Egypt, the world was let in with headlines on what really is an everyday occurrence. Disciples of Jesus Christ being beaten down, robbed of their property and freedom, and even killed simply for this, their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Everyday occurrence around the world. It's just that once in a while, it makes headlines for us to see here in the West. Evil forces behind our current headlines have been active for a long time. Enemies of Jesus and his gospel and his followers have always tried to shut him up and shut him down. That same wicked enemy was present in those who said to Jesus, in essence, we will bury you. Yet they made a really critical mistake. According to John's gospel in John 19, he says this, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden And in the garden, a new tomb, and they laid Jesus there. They buried Jesus in a garden tomb. Kind of a curious choice for this man who predicted his own resurrection. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would say over and over this phrase, kind of a little refrain that we kept hearing, which was this. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And then this, in John chapter 12, as the cross approaches, he says this. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now catch this. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This seed was buried and died, and the harvest from that seed continues to astound us today. Amen? Amen. Jesus is alive and well. The hope of the gospel is thriving despite ongoing and severe persecution. Today, his resurrection is being celebrated and commemorated by millions around the globe. Paul is a professional opponent of Jesus Christ and the gospel message that's being proclaimed until he is confronted. changes his mind. doesn't just change his mind, he changes directions. And he wrote what many consider to be the apex of everything that he wrote. It's called the Letter to the Romans. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to open it up uh, to Romans chapter 7. We believe firmly that you ought not to listen to me and my opinions. I don't have much to offer you. But we ought to listen to the Word of God. We ought to hear from God this morning. And so we have a habit of opening our Bibles here at this church. Romans chapter 7. If you're new with us, we've been in a series called Colossal Truth, and it's walking through this book called Romans. These are big truths that are leveled at all people for all time. You'll see Paul just making these big, gigantic claims, but they're also big truths because they impact not just your lifetime, but all of eternity. We see that our state is ruined. Uh, that we're born into. We're born into the ruined state. And redemption is the state that we are born again into. Let me give you just sort of a sampling of some of the things we've seen so far. All have sinned. Paul walks through for three chapters. Those who diligently are trying to follow the rules, sin. Those who are making up new rules for other people to follow, fail, sin. Those who've just abandoned the path of rules altogether, sin. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and like some of those that he addresses in the first three chapters of Romans, you say this, I don't believe in absolute truth. I certainly don't believe in absolute rules imposed by someone else. Then let's use your own mouth as a standard of judgment. Sin. You failed your own standard. Remember this one? People really shouldn't speed through this neighborhood. Have you ever sped through the neighborhood? How about this one? Look at those people over there gossiping and judging other people. Tisk, tisk. Fail. We can't even live up to our own standard of judgment that would come from our own mouth. All have sinned, the pious and the party animal alike. Secondly is that sin has a cost. The wages of sin is death. All of this has led us to what we've decided to call the first three chapters of of, uh, Romans, just ruin. That's the state we're left in. But God is what happens with redemption. And in redemption, we see that it's been secured at a massive cost, but it's offered to us at no charge. We just covered this last week, Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and you already have heard why Jesus came to die. 
I don't want you to call it out, but just think in your mind, what do you know about why Jesus came to die? And maybe in your head you would scroll through some of these reasons. Show his great love for us. To become a ransom for everyone who would trust in him. To absorb the wrath of God as penalty for our sin. To offer eternal life. All of those glorious truths are accurate. What I want to do this morning is show you another angle of this beautiful gem called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you one that I don't think is talked about as often. But it was amazing as we laid out Romans to see that this happened to land on Easter Sunday. So instead of taking a break and doing a different Easter Sunday message, we're just trouncing right through Romans because it lines up so beautifully with why Jesus came to live, die, be buried, and raised again. Jesus died so that we could belong to him. Look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 7, verse 4. It says, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, if you've been with us week after week, let me just kind of uh, bring you up to speed, sort of where Paul's current argument is going. What is he going after His current argument is this, now that I've been redeemed in Christ, how should I live? Can I live however I want? And his answer is a resounding, by no means. And this morning what he's going to go after is this, by no means, and here's why, you belong to another. Your new spouse changes not only how you live, but the desires for how you live. There's sort of an odd sense of almost spiritual authority that comes with this this thinking. I've kind of come across this in blogs and articles and books and even just in conversations with people. There's sort of this air that says this, I really like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I like Jesus, but I don't like his followers. Some go as far as to say with the bumper sticker, Jesus, save me from your followers. Can you tell these people have had kind of a bad church experience? Here's what's really curious about that. We are called the bride of Christ. So you can imagine the strain if Rob Collins and I, who we share a friendship, if I say, Rob, look, I'm really cool with you, but I can't stand your wife. I just just don't want to ever have anything to do with her. Can you see there might be a strain with Rob and I? Our friendship may not be as close as it could be. Am I right? Do you know that the church of God is called the body of Christ? Imagine someone that you're dating or your spouse comes up to you and says, I love you, really like you a lot, can't stand your body. I I just don't want to have anything to do with your, I can't even look at your body, to be totally honest. (laughs) I mean, what kind of a dating or married life would you have there? We are the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And here's the deal. Jesus died so that we may belong to him. And our belonging to Jesus isn't an individual deal. God saved us out of sin and into a family. And collectively, we belong to Jesus Christ. Collectively, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. Our identity. That's what we are born again into. Let's get into 
text. He uses two illustrations this morning, marriage law and botany. So I don't know if you came to church in your marriage law and botany quotient, but you're going to get it right from Romans here. The first principle is super easy to see. Here it is. I'm going to give you a little quiz, a little Easter quiz. I want you to imagine that an officer of the law pulls over a hearse that is doing 100 miles per hour down Interstate 280. The officer approaches the driver's side, much to his surprise, peeks in the window, and there is a seven-year-old at the wheel. Next to the seven-year-old is an adult, sheepishly looking over. Good day, officer. And in the back, strapped in for safety, is a corpse, a dead body. Okay? Here's where you come in. You're the officer. A. Now, we have some officers of the law. They might know the actual thing to do here. A. Do you arrest the seven-year-old? B. Do you arrest the adult? C. Do you arrest the dead body? D. Do you do all of the above? Or E. Not sure, but certainly not C. Laws don't apply to dead people. This is what he's doing in verse... Let's look at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This is easy to get. We don't need to be experts in the law to figure that one out. Now, what he does is he applies this general principle about the law to a very specific example, that of marriage. Look at verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. You've heard this at weddings, till death do us part. Marriage is a physical union that once separated by death, that union is broken. Therefore, married people who marry someone else are not adulterers. Married people whose spouses have died are called widows or widowers, and they are free to marry. They are free, catch this, to belong to another according to the law. What Paul's doing is he's pointing out the new relationship that Christians enjoy. He has sort of two husbands in view. One is law, the other is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? There's two husbands in view. We are free to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as husband, not because the law died, but because we died with Christ. The law is not dead. The law is still living and active. So in verses 4 to 5, if you're taking notes, just jot this down. We died to the law. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The relationship that once existed between us and law is severed. Death did us part. 
We died with Christ, and that union is now broken, meaning we are now free by law, much like a widow would be, to belong to someone else, to the husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, to him who was raised. Secondly, we are delivered from the law. That is, we're no longer bound to its demands. In fact, Romans is this, that the demands of the law have been met in Jesus Christ. No longer are we striving for perfection. No longer are we so deeply concerned with what we do. We shift all of our attention on what has been done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Friends, this is truly good news. Remember the law bit like a mirror. A mirror shows that you have a dirty face, but does a mirror have any power to clean your dirty face? Absolutely not. The law was never meant to be kept. The law was a pointer to this reality. You are in desperate need of a Savior. Being married to Christ answers the question, can I just live however I want? The answer is no, because I'm married to Christ. I belong to another. Are freedoms lost in marriage? Yes. Joyfully so. And freedoms are gained. Our loss has become a joyful loss. We're happy to make changes in accord with our beloved. I married young. I had uh, just turned 23. And two weeks later, I was getting married. My wife had just turned 21 about a month before we got married. We were the first of all of our groups of friends to get married, and most of them were really happy for us and, and all of that. There was a handful of friends, though, that just really were down on marriage, and they thought, man, what a bummer for you. I mean, you know, ball and chain keeps you, keeps you at home. And, and so I'd be on the phone, and I'm like, yeah, sorry, guys, I can't go out. Sounds like a blast. Man, I thought marriage was the best kept secret. I'm like, you know, little do they know. Like, that was, that was no cost to me at all. I was enthralled with my young bride. We loved being together. Were there freedoms lost? Of course, I'm now considering someone else in the most intimate way I ever have. Looking what it means to be a Christian young man and what does it look like to put other people's needs before my own. I grew up with three brothers. I was learning that all along, but now it was shifted into a whole new realm. What does it look like for me as a Christian husband to lay down my life just as Christ laid down his life for his bride, the church? Gentlemen, let's say that you bring your new bride some flowers. Why would you do that? Well, maybe you're driving home and you think, well, it's against the law not to bring my flowers, my wife flowers, so I better bring her some flowers. No, that's not why you do it. If you're thinking that way at all, write this down. That's not why you do it. You stop and you get flowers for your bride because you love your bride. And inexplicably to you, flowers bring a giant smile across her face. And so you carve out extra time after work. You part with some of your money. And you walk in 
Flowers for your bride. Why? Because she's your beloved and you delight in doing things for your beloved. Do you see that this is delight and not duty? Friends, this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Those who live for God out of fear, catch this, are still married to the law. If you live for God out of fear, you are married to the law. This is cold religion. This is the duty of cold religion. Doesn't 1 John tell us that perfect love casts out fear? Those who aren't married to the law but belong to another husband, to Jesus, know the delight of relationship. We live to please the one we love, not because we have to, but because we get to. Now, there's a daily evidence of this new resurrection reality that we get to enjoy, and it's called fruit. On to our botany example, all right? Look at verse 4. It says, you belong to another, catch this, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, we bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. You can sort of see duty and delight coming to the surface here. Belonging to Jesus means bearing fruit. Now, Paul must have got this from Jesus' own teaching. Instead of having his disciples memorize a bunch of principles and then sort of grade them as they went about, he taught them in simplified ways. And here's one of my favorites. He said, abide in me. Don't memorize a bunch of principles. You abide in me. He tells us that we've been grafted into him as the vine. <clears throat> now we simply remain. So by God's grace, abide says this. And this is good news, friends. Down with memorizing and perfecting principles. Down with getting tired and frustrated at not keeping principles very well. Down with the exhaustion of faking the principles so others won't know how much we stink at keeping principles. Down with searching for God's will as if it is somehow lost. The empty tomb... This Jesus, this seed buried in a garden, produces a harvest. And by God's grace, we get to live daily in the joy and desperation of saying, God's Holy Spirit, we need your power, we need your wisdom today. Produces a harvest as we present ourselves to God. Produces a harvest as we practice simple obedience thus living out God's will day by day by day instead of constantly hunting for it or searching for it. One of the thrills it is to be one of the pastors at this church is to be amongst such an amazing group of Christians just walking in simple obedience. What does it mean to present yourself to God? You open the Bible in the morning and you read what God's word says. He's spoken to us. Then you simply live out what it says to do. And we do this in community. The harvest being produced, the fruit being produced, is a joyous relationship with our beloved. A joyous relationship with the one to whom we belong. If you're married, let me take you back to pre-vows days for a moment. 
I don't know what lengths you went to win the heart of your beloved, but the lengths that God went to win our hearts are absolutely astounding to ponder, think about, and meditate on. Fact is, for centuries, people have written poems, theses, books, and songs to the reality of the great lengths to which our lover pursued our hearts, wooed us over to marry us. I want to invite the band to come on up right now. I belong to another. At age 17, I was baptized. And like a wedding, my baptism was a public declaration declaring that I belong to Jesus. Not just until death do us part, but on in through eternity. Each year at Easter, I celebrate sort of like an anniversary. It's sort of a high day for Christians because we stop and we ponder and think on all that Jesus went through so that we might belong to him. Regularly, Christians are instructed to celebrate communion. Communion is a little bit like date night. It's not the only time that I commune with my beloved, but it is a set-aside time to simply wonder and marvel at the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the joy of belonging to God in an intimate, eternal covenant. I belong to another, and so can you. Friends, if this morning you've never trusted Jesus Christ as the way and the truth and the life, let me say this. The invitation is offered not from me. It's not an invitation of me. This is an invitation directly from Jesus Christ. He doesn't just drop to his knees and propose. In humility, Jesus takes on skin in utter humility and condescension that he might propose. And he doesn't propose because of our great merit. He proposes out of the abundance of his great love. Listen to his proposal. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. After the proposal, the one being proposed to really simply has a choice. My prayer for you, the prayers of many in this room for weeks leading up to this morning, is that many across this valley, many across this world, as Jesus is held up, as his proposal to lost sinners is being issued, that many would have eternity change with these simple words, I do. I accept. Let me invite you to close your eyes. New with this, don't worry, nothing weird's about to happen. I just want you to close your eyes to remove distraction. I've done many weddings over the years. And I went and revisited vows and pledges that I've stood at an altar in front of a crowd before God. And And I want to steer your attention to these vows. You church, take Jesus to be your lawful wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward 
being to him a loving and devoted wife for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, to honor, keep, and cherish him, forsaking all others, as long as you live on into eternity. Do you so pledge your love?